Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's discussion on Palestine, Starmer and the left. Is there a future in Labour? This is a live SWP TV broadcast brought to you by the Socialist Workers Party. My name is Sophia Beach. I'm going to be hosting tonight's discussion. I'm a member of the Socialist Workers Party and also a proud anti-Zionist Jew. And I'm also joined by four absolutely amazing guests. So don't worry, it's not just me we're going to be speaking to tonight. We're going to be asking a lot of questions. So first and foremost, we're going to say a hello to our guests so we can put a face to the names that we've got on our panel. So up first, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Elan Pape, who's joining us tonight. Hello, Elan. Elan is a renowned Israeli historian. He's a professor at the University of Exeter and has written a whole wealth of books on this topic, including the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, all of which will tell you the details about how you can get access of those books later. So thank you so much for joining us, Elan. Hello to you. Next up, we've got Leila Assam. Leila Assam is a Palestinian student and anti-racist activist. She's also a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. So good evening. Thank you to, for joining us, Leila. Up next, we've also got Judy Cox. I'm proud to announce Judy Cox is an activist in the NEU. She's also recently left the Labour Party to join the Socialist Workers' Party. So good evening, Judy, and welcome to the SWP. And last but certainly not least, we're also joined by Charlie Kimber. Charlie Kimber is the editor of Socialist Worker, which is a revolutionary weekly newspaper, which you can find online at www.socialistworker.co.uk. And the last group I'd like to welcome and thank for joining as you, the audience. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a number, we've been doing a number of live streams throughout the lockdown and the COVID crisis. This is our latest one. And we're live streaming across four platforms this evening. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and we're also giving Instagram a go. So hopefully that all works okay. And I'd just really like to remind you, please continue to keep sharing the link. We're discussing a really important topic tonight and it's important we reach as wide an audience as possible. But on top of that, you can also comment on all of the social media streams. We'd really like to hear from you. So please make any comments you have, any updates, tell us what you're thinking about, or if you've got any specific questions for our panelists or border ones, please do keep asking them throughout the meeting and we'll try and funnel them in as much as possible because like I've said it's really important that we reach as many people and we hear from you because we're discussing an, an incredibly important topic tonight given the events this has been a very this has been a very eventful week for Palestinians and those who stand in solidarity with Palestine. Despite still being in a global pandemic the Israeli coalition government just this week have announced further plans to annex at least 30% of what is still left of the West Bank in the coming weeks. This move marks nothing but an intensification of over 70 years of oppression of the Palestinian people and also the illegal occupation of Palestinian land. However, on top of this, and much closer to home, viewers and our panelists will be aware of the rows erupting in the Labour Party over the treatment of Rebecca Long-Bailey and her sacking. As we'll get into discussion, people will know that Rebecca Long-Bailey shared an article written by actress Maxine Peake in which she uh, criticised some of the tactics used and actions made by the Israeli state. However, Rebe Rebecca Long-Bailey has now been sacked for retweeting this article, despite many activists, including myself, not thinking the contents of the article were anti-Semitic. Actually, I think what we'll come to see is the treatment of Rebecca Long-Bailey has shocked many activists, both inside and outside of Labour, and all those who stand in solidarity with Palestine. 
The moves made by Keir Starmer's Labour Party have raised questions about the direction of the left here in Britain and where can we go in order for organising Palestinian solidarity and building a better future world that we all want to see here in, here in Britain and across the world. So I'm really keen to get the ball rolling and get the discussion starting so we can tackle both these events that have happened this week and also tackle the questions about the future of the Palestinian and also the socialist movement. So Charlie, I'd like to come to you first this evening. Why do you think it is such an important week to be talking about Palestine? It's an important week because as early as tomorrow, perhaps it will be delayed by internal disagreements, the Israeli state, in alliance with Donald Trump, will announce formally that it is to take over a vast element of the West Bank. Of course, the Israeli state has, for many decades, oppressed the Palestinian people. And it has, for many years, essentially controlled, dominated, constrained, the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank. But it would be a formal move to take it over. Why is that happening? It's happening because they've been encouraged by Trump and because Netanyahu runs a regime of permanent war readiness in order to bolster his own rule. That's very, very important that they're going to go ahead with that. It would, I think, represent the final eradication of the hopes of anyone who believes that a two-state solution is possible in Palestine. That's the most important thing on one level that we're going to be talking about tonight. But for us in Britain as well, it was at this moment of extreme peril for the Palestinian people when the rapacious nature of the Israeli state and of imperialism was fully on display that the new Labour leader, Sakir Starmer, decided to launch a double assault on the Labour left using the excuse of Palestine in order to attack them. And we know that the issue of anti-Semitism has been used against the left in the most disgusting way, because anti-Semitism is an important issue, not one to be played with as a political tool. Anti-Semitism comes overwhelmingly from the governments of the far right, like Viktor Orban, in Hungary and the sorts of people that cluster around Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. And instead, it has been employed in order to try and undermine Jeremy Corbyn and then the rest of the left. And at this moment, Keir Starmer is trying to use that issue to break any alternative to the ruling class consensus that is put over about the Middle East, about Palestine, about Israel, but also about what sort of Britain we live in. And regrettably, the response from much of the left inside the Labour Party has been more concessions, more compromises, more retreats. And one of the central messages that has to go out from tonight is that retreat simply leads to more assaults, more retreats, and more victories for the other side. So I hope what we'll talk about is how we can build solidarity with the Palestinian people, how we can get a bigger movement against what the Israeli state is attempting to do and what imperialism is attempting to do, but also to interrogate why it is that this happens inside the Labour Party and to put forward an alternative to the politics of what Labourism represents 
a genuine emancipatory politics around Palestine, around racism, around climate chaos and against capitalism. Great, I couldn't agree more. And given talking about getting the conversation going, the ball rolling and building the socialists and the Palestinian movement, I'd just like to announce that already only eight minutes into our live stream, we've already got over 550 people watching across all four platforms. So please do continue sharing and commenting your questions because just as Charlie said, we really need to be talking about these things and building the movement. I think it's only apt now to turn to our Palestinian on the panel, Leila, who's a student at the University of Bristol. As we mentioned already, regardless of whether it's tomorrow or in the coming weeks, it's very clear that the Israeli state are planning to annex at least 30% of what is the West Bank. What does this mean for people like you, your friends and family, those living in the West Bank and other Palestinians living in Palestine? Well, I think the term annexation is being thrown around a lot and we need to understand really what it means. You know, under international law, it's very clear annexation and territorial conquest are completely forbidden by the Charter of the United Nations. So the West Bank is seen as an occupied territory under inter international law, which makes all settlements there as well as the planned annexation completely illegal. Now, the planned uh, annexation, which will go forward, regardless if it's tomorrow or, or the next day, will deprive Palestinians of key agricultural land and water resources, especially in the Jordan Valley region. Um, but for myself and many other Palestinians, we would argue that the annexation is just a formality for what has already been happening on the ground um, in the occupied West Bank for so many years. You know, Israel has been running a military occupation for more than half a century, which affects us in daily life um, in Palestine, you know, which comes with countless human rights violations uh, with it. And now the occupation of the West Bank has long been referred to as something that could be temporary. And this has kind of allowed Israel to deflect questions around, you know, why Israeli settlers have citizenship in the West Bank when Palestinians don't, or why there are certain roads for Jewish people and different roads for Arabs. Um, but if Israel were to annex so much of the West Bank, which they are planning to, uh, that it would effectively and permanently take control of the land and everyone in it um, without them being citizens, that is apartheid. And this has already been happening and has been for years. So if we go into the annexation a bit deeper, I think it's important to understand how much is planning on being taken. It's about 40% of what is left of the West Bank, which is including Jerusalem and all the settlements. Now it's going to chop up the West Bank into tiny areas and we already don't have much uh, freedom of movement. You have to cross a lot of checkpoints, you know, to get to one area of the West Bank to another. Now this annexation is going to make it so much harder for us to get from one city to another to see family, to go to work. Um, it's going to be completely controlled. People in the occupied, you know, the new annexated land will have absolutely no rights. Uh, it's a complete disaster for Palestinians. And I think the most important thing to understand from this is what they're planning on doing to the Jordan Valley um, is a complete disaster for Palestinians because that is known as the breadbasket for Palestinians. Um, it constitutes half of the total of agricultural area providing food for Palestinians all over the West Bank. You know, if annexation goes ahead, not only people are going to lose their jobs, um, their livelihoods, it's not just going to affect all of us in the West Bank in terms of food, but, you know, people's 
land that our great, great, great grandfathers and grandmothers, the trees that they planted, their crops will be destroyed. Um, so it's not just, a, a, you know, we don't talk about it in terms of it's just a disaster for current. It's a disaster for our, our identities and our heritage because our identity lies in the soil and in the trees that, you know, our great grandfathers planted. Um, and it's not just the annexation that's about to happen that is a disaster for Palestinians. It's what we've been living through for over half a century. It's the daily life in occupied land. And we've been seeing, you know, we've been seeing a lot of horrors in Palestine for so much time. And it's not just the new annexation. Land has been taken and closed off since 1967. Uh, people's olive farms, people's uh, you know, any type of agricultural land has been continuously taken, some even burnt down. Uh, people have been unable to water their crops or even enter their land. There's a lack of water. Um, so we're really looking at a final, you know, push into an extremely dark place for Palestinians. But we have already been living in an extremely dark place. And I think it's, it's important to understand why. Now, annexation it's not just about taking more land. Um, it's about making life incredibly difficult for Palestinians, which it already is, but this is a tactic and it's a very clever one at that. You know, if you can't make people leave by force, which happened in the Nekba in 1948, you can't make people leave by force anymore. If you make their lives so difficult and you restrict them from working, from traveling, you take away their land, which they farm on. Um, you make every single aspect of daily life so difficult um, that they will not want to live there anymore. And I think this aspect of control, of making life so difficult that they want to leave, um, is key in understanding the annexation, but also understanding why daily life in Palestine is such a struggle and why, you know, in our occupied land, we have to fight every single day just to go to work or to go to school or to go anywhere for leisure, really. So the annexation um, is is an extra struggle in the struggle that which continues and has for over half a century. Well, thanks for articulating that so clearly, Leila. I think it's really useful actually to go through what annexation really means because for so many people whether or not you're clued up on the subject subject or not this jargon can really actually put people off talking about things so i think you laid that out absolutely brilliantly i'd like to say now we're on over 600 people watching i'm sure they're all just as excited and delighted as i am to turn to the next person we're going to speak to um, which is elan pape once again thank you for joining us elan i'll be honest i've got a million questions that i'd like to ask you um as do i'm sure loads of people but i think it might be wise if we start with just two for now so first i'd like to know what you think really lies behind israel's annexation plans and secondly what will be the impact of these plans yeah yeah uh, thank you uh sophia uh it's it's important to, to see the uh, annexation plan as part of uh the trump netanyahu overall strategy uh for the palestine uh, question which uh, uh was not formulated uh, uh uh, just recently, but was already in, in place since 2016. And the basic uh, uh, vision or the basic objective of this uh, um, uh, strategy is to depoliticize the Palestinian uh, uh, question, namely to turn 
the issue of Palestine into an issue of economics uh, or welfare, humanitarian question maybe, but to uh, deny the Palestinians any rights as a national uh, group. Uh, so it didn't start with the annexation, it started with the American uh, recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli uh, capital and the transfer of the American embassy. Uh, it continued with the Israeli nationality law uh, in the summer of 2018, the closure of all the archives that dealt with the Israeli atrocities in 1948. And in many ways, uh, uh, the annexation is the comp complements these uh, more long-term strategies uh, with mid-term strategies on the ground. Namely, if the Palestinians are to be to depoliticized, namely they're not going to be recognized by Israel or the United States as a political national group with rights, such as rights for self-determination, right of return, uh, uh, and so on, then the question is where should they live and under what conditions? And if you take together the deal of the century, or rather the steel of the century, the annexation plan and the, um, uh, the Israeli nationality law, if you put them together, if you fuse them together as a strategy, the idea is that uh, uh, on around 40% of the West Bank, which are areas A and B, and within the Gaza Strip, uh, or the, uh, and the Gaza Strip as well, there will be three Bantustan, three small Palestinian autonomous enclaves, uh, and uh, they would run their own affairs, but of course would not have any sovereignty rights, economic uh, policy rights, not, not to mention they would be demilitarized and uh, they would not be able to uh, represent a Palestinian national aspiration for freedom and independence. Uh, uh, so the annexation is just a small part of it, but of course, as Laila rightly said, uh, for the people on the ground, especially those in the areas that would be annexed, uh, uh, the daily uh, harassment would increase and accelerate as a result of the official annexation. But one should say, really, if you look at uh, the area that supposedly tomorrow and Netanyahu is going to declare as under Israeli sovereignty or under Israeli law, much of this area, whether it's in the Jordan Valley or in the south of Mount Hebron, uh, is or, has already been ethnically cleansed uh, 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 from the uh, native uh, indigenous Palestinians who live there. So um, in practice, uh, not much would change on the ground, uh, but the declaration itself is just another indication that both the United States and Israel feel that they can implement this assault on the on Palestine and the Palestinian people, which is as dangerous as was the 1948 uh, Nakba. Now, uh, to your second question, which was, what's going to, uh, could you repeat the second question? Oh, you can't repeat sorry. the second oh. I can do. The second question was, what is, sorry, Ilan. That's okay. so the second question was, what is the impact of the annexation, I guess, both for Palestinians on the ground, oh, yeah. but also for yeah. those fighting for Palestinian yeah. solidarity yeah. and justice? Uh, I, I, I think uh, we, uh, before, the people who spoke before me already alluded to one, one important implication, and this is the, the future of the two-state solution. Uh, but one should say uh, the two-state solution is, has been dead for many, many years. It's, it's a body in the morgue. 
the only thing that nobody dares to do is to invite us to the funeral of that body. In this, in this sense, uh, it's only uh, reinforcing something that has already been clear for, for, for me at least and many other people uh, that uh, the only counter deal to the deal of the century is a Palestinian support for a one democratic state all over Palestine. Any other program uh, would allow, as we have seen, would allow Israel to deepen its colonization, its oppression, its ethnic cleansing, would create the impression of uh, a peace process that goes nowhere and would allow uh, the Israelis immunity for their impunity uh, on the ground. So really what needs to happen is a Palestinian unification uh, around a new uh, uh, vision for the liberation of Palestine that includes the whole of Palestine and not just uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which tells the world that uh, there are only two options in historical Palestine, either an Israeli apartheid republic all over historical Palestine or a democratic state for all that would allow all the refugees who want to return to it and to build a society built on principles of equality and democracy instead of the uh, apartheid system and in some areas even worse than apartheid system that Israel uh, uh, imposes on, on the Palestinian. That is what should happen. Will it happen? Well, I hope it will. Uh, what also needs to happen, and I think is happening, is of course the intensification of the BDS campaign uh, against Israel, the whole idea that uh, these actions are pure violations of international law, even if they are supported by the United States. And we're still hoping that the dramatic shift in civil society in the world in the last 10 years in support of Palestine would finally make its way to the upper echelons of politics. And we will see also politicians in positions of power adopting courageous, bold uh, 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 actions and policies uh, that would bring to an end this, uh, uh, this overdue uh, moment uh, that uh, would uh, topple the, the apartheid regime. Uh, that the Palestinians had been suffering for more than uh, 70, 72 years. So I think that's what should happen. Uh, I hope it will happen. I'm not sure it will, but of course, as activists, uh, we will do all we can to make it happen. I'm sure we will. Uh, and uh, this by itself, and with this I would end, could also, as, as, as absurd as, as it may sound to some people, uh, I'm speaking to you from Haifa uh, today. Um, the, there is a core of anti-Zionist Jews who would remain insignificant if there won't be a clear position of the Palestinians and the world at large uh, that tells them that their position that supports a one democratic state is the valid one, is the right one, and they would they want to show solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle. And if these two processes inside the Palestinian side and in the world community would take place, I think also this group that looks very bizarre now within the Israeli political landscape will become much more influential and much more and much bigger because what it would say would make sense if it is echoed also by the Palestinian national movement and the international community. Thank you.
Thanks for that, Elan. I couldn't agree more with you what you said. We're now on close to 700 people watching, so please do continue sharing the link and commenting your quest commenting questions or whatever you feel free like you'd like to say. I can see a comment from Paul here who says, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I absolutely agree with that sentiment, Paul, and we do in the SWP. Just like Elan said, we won't see the freedom of the Palestinian people without a one secular democrat democratic state in Palestine. But also, I completely agree with you, Elan about furthering the BDS campaign, uniting a Palestinian justice campaign globally. And that's why I think it's actually important and quite critical that we turn to the question of the Labour Party now here in Britain, because we're seeing it becoming increasingly difficult actually to organise under the guise of BDS or make any kind of criticism of the state of Israel. As has been mentioned last week, we saw the removal of Rebecca Long-Bailey for a tweet that was, in the opinion of most, not an anti-Semitic tweet. Um, and this is the latest in a long line of attacks that we've seen, which occurred throughout Corbyn and his leadership um, of the Labour Party. So, Charlie, I'd like to come to you again. What are these attacks really about? Well, look, uh, what Sakia Starmer is attempting to do is to reshape and to remould the Labour Party to say that it is a safe option for the ruling class in Britain to pick the Labour Party instead of the Conservative Party, to say that he has eradicated all the elements of Corbynism inside the party and has made it a party which will dance to the tune of the establishments inside the military and inside the capitalist ruling class. That's what he's about. Let's be clear about this. And Palestine is being used as a touchstone issue because Palestine exemplifies the way in which imperialism works it exemplifies the subservience of the British state towards the American ruling class and its wishes. And therefore, anyone who stands up for Palestinian rights is immediately suspect. Let's understand how far this is going. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey retweeted an article by Maxine Peake, which included the charge that the American police uh, took training from the Israeli security forces. That's true. You don't have to say every last detail of that article uh, was correct to understand that what she was saying was essentially absolutely correct. And therefore, uh, to seize upon it is a deliberate political act by Sir Keir Starmer. It's to say, anyone who stands up for Palestinian rights, I'm going to drive you out of the party. It's combined with saying that uh, the Black Lives Matter, that magnificent movement which has swept across the globe, is a moment, not a movement. That the demand to defund the police that has come out of it is nonsense, as Starmer said it. That uh, as the Shadow Welsh Secretary, Nia Griffith, the MP for Llanelli, put it, anyone who defends Rebecca Long-Bailey is also anti-Semitic. And so it spreads, and so it spreads, that it will be used as a way to smash the left and to smash those who stand up for Palestinian rights. Now, in some ways, that's not unexpected. We knew that Sakia Starmer might parrot that he was talking about unity of the party and standing for the sorts of policies that Corbyn believed in. But in truth, anyone who understood what was going on knew that there would be unity only on the terms of the Labour right and that the abandonment of any support of Palestinian rights would be central 
to what Starmer was going to attempt to do. The real question, however, that we have to address is the response of the Labour left and those who want to support Palestine. Because again and again, and I'm afraid this happened under Jeremy Corbyn as well, there has been concessions, there have been compromises, there have been retreats, the acceptance of the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, definition of anti-Semitism, which essentially says that to say Zionism is a racist project is anti-Semitic, constant retreats about it. The difference is those were shamefaced and embarrassed retreats. Now what we have with Starmer is vigorous embrace of all of the demands of imperialism and of the British establishment. He's doing it quite deliberately. He's driving out elements of the left and he's saying to everyone else, you have to surrender or otherwise you can't be in my Labour Party. And that raises a very big question. If you support Palestinian rights, if you support an assault upon the sort of regime that Boris Johnson represents, if you want a different sort of society, Sakia Starmer is making it clear to you, this isn't the party for you. And people say stay and fight. Okay. First of all, that means they do have to fight and not concede. But in truth, this is the repetition of a pattern that we have seen again and again. And what I think is happening is that Starmer's break from the past puts four square before people. Where really are you politically going to put your emphasis? What's your political home now? Where are you most effective? And it's not in the Labour Party. Yeah, thanks for that. We've had a comment from Richard who completely agrees with you, Charlie. He says Starmer is playing to the establishment. He attacks the Palestinian cause to please British military interests only. We've also had a comment from Iman saying, well said, Leila. And a comment from Rob saying, brilliant as always, Elan. Don't worry, Charlie, I'm sure there will be some praise coming your way shortly. Um, I think what is quite clear from what you've been saying is that what the Labour right is trying to make it seem is that at the real crux of the issue lies the assumption that criticism of Israel is inherently anti-Semitic. Now, as a Jewish anti-Zionist, I find this increasingly frustrating and difficult to grapple with. You know, the insinuation that the whole of the left and the pro-Palestinian movement is inherently anti-Semitic is disastrous for us. And it's an argument that we absolutely wholeheartedly have to be unapologetically stand against it and show why it is not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. But Elan, you've been tackling with these articles for decades now. Where do these smears come from? Yeah, I'm with you. Sorry. Um, uh, well, I, I think that it was very clear that the campaign began uh, the moment there was a danger in the eyes of the pro-Israeli Zionist lobby in Britain that someone uh, like Jeremy Corbyn could have a position of power such as the leader of the Labour Party, a candidate for the Prime Minister. Uh, it's been a while in Britain since someone reached such a, a prominent uh, position with clear and genuine support for the Palestinian struggle. So, so that, I think, triggered the whole uh, uh, campaign. Uh, it was directed from, from, from Israel. I don't think it was initiated by the Blairites uh, 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 themselves, but it's part of a strategy that began already in 2010 to weaponize anti-Semitism in order to stifle any debate 
about Israel or any criticism on Israel. I think what fused here together was the Blairites' attempt to bring down a, a genuine socialist as a leader of the Labour Party, someone who uh, was adhered to the basic ideas that uh, originally uh, brought to the creation of the of the Labour Party and not uh, to continue and have a party which is a, a pale shadow of, of the Conservative Party, hoping that this somehow would bring them back uh, uh, to power. Uh, so, so I think the, 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 uh, the, these were really insidious and, uh, and, and manipulative reasons that uh, suddenly people were talking about uh, uh, institutional racism in the Labour Party and everything that went uh, with it. And I totally agree with Charlie. I, I, I think that uh, the Labour Party handled it very poorly. Um, uh, it, it was as if uh, uh, it did not understand or did not analyze correctly why this campaign happened. Uh, if you check, and I did it, if you go back and you check the official Labour position toward these accusations uh, over time, and you try to analyze through from these accusations, try to analyze how they, what did they think was the motive for uh, alleging that there was institutional anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party. From their perspective, A, there's some truth to it, B, there is a real problem there, and, and C, we didn't handle it too well, but now we we're doing a much better job. This is pure nonsense. This played so well into the hands of these very manipulative, uh, horrible kind of people who, who initiated this campaign, people who don't care about anti-Semitism and don't care about racism at all. They only cared about uh, to, to complete the project of bringing down Jeremy Corbyn, but it played into their hands. They, I, I think they were, were surprised by this reaction. I mean, they invented something that didn't uh, didn't exist, and the Labour Party said, "Oh, you're right, it exists." Uh, 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 I hope they will never, of course, with with Keir, uh, that, that's God knows where we're going with this one. But I think this is something that uh, should be uh, uh, we we should learn uh, and analyze again th this reaction and learn from it, and and not repeat it because uh, it played into the hands of a very manipulative uh, program meant to uh, send a lesson to Europe as a whole and to the West as a whole. This is what's going to happen to any aspiring leader or politician who would dare uh, publicly and genuinely and openly support the Palestine cause. And just final uh, remark, I think, which is important to say, uh, the whole uh, definition of, uh, or the whole equation of criticizing Israel with, with anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, I think we, we should really stress one point that, uh, we, we stress many good points, I think, in, the, in our reaction to this kind of campaign, but one point was missing, I think, and we should say this. Uh, it really abuses the term anti-Semitism. If every little uh, 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 kind of crit critique on Israel is anti-Semitism, there's no anti-Semitism. It really undermines the real anti-Semitism that existed, that uh, 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 led to the genocide of Jews in Europe, uh, that is still there among the, especially the right wing, the extreme right wing. Uh, but the way uh, the, Euro, uh, the EU and the Labour Party in it uh, 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 deal with anti-Semitism 
abuses both the Holocaust memory, but more importantly, they have really turned anti-Semitism into something which is not very severe, is not really a problem, uh, and it's only if you're interested in Israel, then there is a, a certain issue with it. Instead, of course, of including it in the struggle against racism, wherever it exists, against whoever uh, is, is a target of that. Thank you. Thanks, Ilan. I think that's an incredibly important last point that you made about almost the absolute misuse and violence against the language of the term anti-Semitism. As somebody whose grandfather's family died in the Holocaust in the Warsaw Ghetto and in the camps of Treblinka, I think it's incredibly important that as socialists we have to stand at all times against anti-Semitism. And actually what we do need to realize is that anti-Semitism and the far right are on the rise across Europe and in the US with Donald Trump, with Bolsonaro in Brazil. We know that anti-Semitism is wholeheartedly plays a unique function within the role of fascism. And this is something that as socialists, we always need to be very vocal and open about. So thank you for making that point, Elan. I think it's incredibly important. I'd like to remind people to continue sharing the streams and asking questions. I've got a comment here from Sybil and also a comment from Martha that I'm going to ask Leila. Sybil says, all socialists need to get behind the Palestine Solidarity Campaign actions this Saturday and join the local PSC branch. You can do these things on Facebook, on Twitter. Please do get involved. Martha also asks that my university has just adopted the IHRA definition, and I'm worried that this is going to affect how we fight for Palestine. She says, how can we support Palestinian liberation in, the, in this case while standing firm at the same time against, um, against anti-Semitism? Given the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey, the PSC actions that are going on this weekend, I think it's very clear that it's going to have a big impact on Palestine solidarity here in Britain and how we organise. Leila, I'm a recently graduated student myself and I can understand the difficulties sometimes organising on campus. Given Martha's question, what do you think the impact on the ground is going to be? Leila. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question, Martha. And as a student, as a Palestinian student, and as an anti-racist, as a socialist, um, it's it's difficult to see any type of silencing or censorship on campus, uh, which is a place where we want to be as vocal as possible. Now, in terms of the IHRA definition and um, wanting to support Palestine as well as support uh, cases of anti-Semitism, it needs to be made really, really clear by by you, uh, you know, by, to your friends, to everyone, that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Um, and Elan speaks brilliantly on this, um, but it needs to, that, that is what you need to push hard because um, we have to be able to speak out against the political project of Zionism, um, which we know is not anti-Semitism. Now, Zionism, if we look into its history as a political movement, only really emerged in the 19th century. And Zionism under the UN in 1975 was called a form of racism and racial discrimination. Now, to then conflate it to anti-Semitism is to, as Elan said, is to completely you know, disengage from real anti-Semitism. So it's a very dangerous territory to, to get into. But what we need to make clear as students, as activists, and as a Palestinian, is that Zionism as a political project is, is imperialism, 
it's settler colonialism and it's racism. And once you have to make that distinction that Zionism is not intrinsically tied to Judaism, you know, as we can see, we have Sophia here, uh, not all Jewish people identify as Zionist. And once we make that explicitly clear, we can keep fighting for the Palestinian cause. We can never censor ourselves. Um, being pro-Palestinian is not anti-Semitic in the slightest. And we can see that by the enormous amount of Jewish um, supporters that we have. We have to make the distinction. We have to remain strong in our focus, which is um, getting uh, liberation for the oppression of all Palestinian people. Um, which we now, you know, with so much help from people like Elan, we know is not any way linked to anti-Semitism. And I understand how difficult it is on campus, but making that distinction um, consistently, I think is the best way to go about it. But it is hard because censorship is real on campus. We do have systems like Prevent, which we are very against um, at the SWP and on campus as anti-racist uh, activists because it singles out societies like different palsocks um, for speaking out against Palestine. So you need to be as vocal as possible. We need to keep fighting these oppressive systems um, because as, as a pro-Palestinian activist all over the country, um, we're not gonna stop talking about it. Um, and what, what I would advise is that, yeah, you make that distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and you keep being extremely vocal. Um, and I think the message will get across. That's very clear to us, like we said, both you and I, Leila, are on the same page here about being vocal about Palestinian rights and young women, especially coming together to fight against all injustices. Both you and Elan have addressed the point about the IHRA definition definition. Elan spoken very eloquently about the mistakes, I think, and the failings of the way in which the Corbyn camp um, and the Labour Party have dealt with this strategy. But I think it's really important, actually, for us to delve a little bit deeper into the philosophy um, of Zionism and actually arm ourselves with the, with the knowledge, because we know that these can be very muddy waters sometimes and very difficult topics um, to actually address and begin to understand, which is why I'd like to ask Elan a question from the floor, actually. Kate has commented um, a brilliant question, I think. Kate asks, does Zionism as a political ideology actually help in the fight against anti-Semitism? Um, it's a short question, but it's got a very big answer. So over <laughs> to you, Ian, to fill us in. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good uh, question. Um, there is a short period or there is a short episode where you can definitely say that uh, the fact that the political movement was able to bring uh, Jews from Europe uh, from Nazi Europe to, to Palestine, uh, they saved the lives of these people. That is true. But this should be seen within a context. And the context is that um, uh, this particular salvage operation was not that important for Zionism because uh, they wanted to fight anti-Semitism, but rather because they wanted to increase the number of Jewish settlers in Palestine because otherwise they would not be able to dispossess the Palestinians as they did in 1948. Therefore, there is no alternative, no substitute for, for understanding these uh, connection. And uh, of course, one cannot do it by a soundbite. I always say that if someone asks you, why is anti-Semitism, uh, why anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, my first reaction is always, do you have time for my answer? Because I cannot answer it in a soundbite. I have to explain the origin of Zionism. But all in all, I think, uh, especially after 
uh, uh, the Second World War, uh, Zionism became the ideology by which uh, Israel completed its takeover as of much of Palestine as possible uh, and got rid of as many Palestinians as possible. And that was what Zionism became. Uh, uh, and uh, this by itself fueled anti-Semitism and did not help to uh, uh, challenge anti-Semitism. A second point which is very important from the very beginning of Zionism, uh, the idea that Jews should be in Palestine and not in Europe, not in North America, uh, or wherever they lived, was shared by two groups of people, the Zionists uh, and the anti-Semitic uh, uh, individuals and groups, because uh, they, have some, they had something in common and they still do today have something in common. And this is they don't want to see the Jews in a Western society, in a Christian society. And therefore they supported full-heartedly the idea that the Jews should move to uh, Palestine. Among them was a very important group that today is still very important, the Christian Zionists, who on, are anti-Semitic and believe actually that getting rid of the Jews uh, where they live is not just going to purify uh, their society from the presence of Jews, but is going to contribute to a, 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 a religious plan or a theological plan uh, that would bring back uh, 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 the Messiah, uh, resurrect the dead, and uh, uh, eventually would lead to the conversion of Jews uh, to Christianity. So, uh, as, as I always like to say, that it's a double bill for these people. Uh, they get rid of all the Jews and they get back the only Jew they wanted, which is Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and this is something that uh, was always there at the back, uh, uh, in the background. And I will finish by a very good historical example that should tell people something about the connection between anti-Semitism and Zionism. Uh, and this is Lord Balfour himself. Uh, Lord Balfour, who, who promised something that did not belong to Britain, gave it to as a political uh, movement the country did not belong to. Lord Balfour himself, uh, uh, in 1905, uh, uh, initiated legislation that was meant to stop the arrival of uh, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe to Britain. And uh, there is a connection between his uh, 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 very uh, active uh, uh, policies to prevent the arrival of Jews, to prevent from Jews uh, uh, to immigrate to Britain, and his uh, support for the idea of a Jewish colony, a Jewish state. Uh, in Palestine. So uh, to answer now in one sentence, Zionism uh, not only did not uh, help to eradicate uh, anti-Semitism, uh, in many ways it enhanced it and it still feeds, uh, uh, it's not the only reason, but it, it adds fuel to the fire of anti-Semitism by the way uh, Israel acts on the ground, the way it treated the Palestinians, uh, and the kind of Judaism that it claims to, to represent uh, uh, is something that most decent Jews in the world do not agree with, uh, but nonetheless can be presented as a Jewish position and not just as a Zionist position, and that leads to a lot of problems.
Thanks for clearing that up. And once again, always being so succinct and articulate, Elan. And once again, a final thank you. Thanks for joining us this evening. For those who missed at the start of the show or those who don't necessarily have a great memory, they may forget that we've got a fourth guest with us tonight who I'm actually really excited to bring in and speak to now. Judy, Judy's, Judy Cox has been waiting very patiently backstage of our show. So I want to talk to her now because Judy's a primary school teacher. She's an activist in the NEU and an ex-member of the Labour Party who's recently joined the Socialist Workers Party. And Judy, I've got loads of questions to ask you, as do um, loads of people. But I think for a lot of people who were inspired by Corbyn to join Labour, the treatment of Rebecca Long-Bailey and how she's been sacked has really been the final straw. Many people are, if not already, at least considering like leaving, just like you have done. Can you resonate with these people and why do you think that they're feeling this way? Um, I saw lots of people cutting up their party cards on Twitter, lots of pictures of people quite rightly, absolutely furious at what happened to Rebecca Long Bailey. And I think Jeremy was defeated by a relentless media campaign. He was defeated in a general election. He was defeated by his own party membership when they voted overwhelmingly for Keir Starmer. And yet, despite that, people can cling to a little bit of hope that at least this one person can represent a different view, can represent some kind of Corbyn Easter challenge to Keir Starmer. And when he sacked her, he sent a very clear message that that wasn't the case, that there would be no influence, there would be no conciliation, there would be no unity, even with a, a very weakened um, version of Corbyn. And I think people are furious because Maxine Peake's original article connected the oppression of black people in America with the oppression of Palestinians. And that is an absolutely right link to make in my view, because both of these issues are rooted in specific circumstances, but have massive global reach, have evoked campaigns of massive um, global solidarity. And we cannot be in a position where we are apologetic or ashamed to stand up for Palestine. It can't be a crime to stand up for Palestine. And so kind of why is Keir Starmer doing this? Why is he humiliating people and stifling the pro-Palestinian voices? And it, it's not about popularity. Many, many trade unions, including my own, have very progressive policies about Palestine, support BDS, send people on fact-finding missions where they realise the absolute appalling conditions that Leila outlined earlier. It's not about popularity, it's all about power. And I think it's, it's about Keir Starmer proving to both the British establishment and the international establishment that he is on the side of the masters of war, that he is the kind of person who would happily sit down next to Donald Trump when Jeremy Corbyn refused to do so. He is setting out his stall as somebody who will not rock the boat and who will not bring about radical change. And I think for lots of people in the Labour Party, that raises the question then, if we devote all this time and energy to getting into office, that on the way we have to dro drop all our principles, what really is it that we're fighting for? And I think it's particularly painful because 
I don't think Palestine wasn't a side issue of Corbynism. It wasn't that people liked his views on hospitals and transport and schools, but had to suck up the um, Palestine anti-imperialism. It was central to Corbynism. It was central to Corbyn's appeal. Huge pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Britain in 2014 fed into Jeremy's victory in 2015. And if people remember in 2018, Labour Party conference, there were a thousand Palestinian flags waved in the conference hall, delegates chanting, free, free Palestine. And a, a delegate um, got up and made the most powerful speech where he said to the Palestinians, we hear your voices from the darkness. We'll never turn away from you again. And yet, where are they now? Those voices have been silenced. They have been stifled inside the Labour Party. So now we need to see them flourishing on the streets, in the campaigns that Sybil talked about and in building a different kind of alternative party. Like we said, now is the time. Like we said, now is the time, you know, to completely be flourishing. If we can't have these conversations within the Labour Party, then we need to turn elsewhere and have them, which is why, even though we're coming towards the end of our live stream, I'd like to remind people just once again, please do comment any questions that you have, share the stream so we can reach as wide a people as many. We're just currently talking about the moves that Keir Starmer's made. I think Julie was absolutely right to show that what is Keir Starmer really doing? He's saying that he's showing that he's a safe pair of hands for the establishment figures, um, and to be re-elected, which actually for those who joined Labour, that is not what um, young socialists like myself want to see. Like Judy said, I think Keir Starmer has really shown his true colours, not just with the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey, but actually how he's completely dealt with the corona crisis lockdown, how he hasn't attacked Boris Johnson in a way that we know Corbyn would have done. And in fact, I think he's been incredibly, incredibly idle about the whole situation. I'd like to turn to Charlie again about this. How much do you think that this new Keir Starmer era, sorry, getting muddled with my words, is a real break from Corbynism? Oh, look, it's an important difference. Um, Corbyn tried to say that the Labour Party was going to be an anti-austerity party and it was a party that was not going to jump to the call of American imperialism. Uh, those were important breaks. They inspired hundreds of thousands of people to join the Labour Party. They inspired millions of people to vote for the Labour Party in 2017. There's no doubt at all about that. And Starmer is trying to trample on that agenda. So that now his real motto is soft on the Tories, hard on the left. Uh, he didn't call for the sacking of Dominic Cummings. He doesn't call for the sacking of Robert Jenrick, the housing secretary facing a slew of corruption allegations, but he does immediately remove Rebecca Longbailey. We understand what that's about. There is a difference between them, and it's an important difference. But they also share a set of politics. And this, this we have to interrogate, because the set of politics is that real social change comes through parliament. And that involves having an electoral party which wins, which is based upon the unity of left and right. And the way this always works inside the Labour Party is that the right demands concessions, the centre of the party makes concessions to the right and the left of the party makes concessions to the centre. And everybody is pulled by the parliamentary Labour Party, which is central to the whole Labourist project. This is what's happened again and again inside 
the Labour Party, backed up the MPs by the trade union leaders who uh, represent a centrist or right-wing pull upon the Labour Party. That's the reality of this. The whole history of the Labour Party in Britain has shown us this. And if that were not enough, when such parties get elected to office, they then face a storm from the bankers, from the bosses, from the international financial institutions, all of which line up to say, you may have won an election, but nothing must change. And if you think that you can change things, then we will have investment strikes. We will have runs on your currency. We will attack you in the bond markets, which means that you can't borrow money. And we will destroy you if you want to play by our rules. This is what's happened again, again, in the history of the Labour Party from the first election in 1924, right up until today. And then think about the more recent examples. Think of Syriza in Greece, elected in 2015 as the hope of the anti-austerity forces across Europe, told by the International Monetary Fund and the European Central Bank and the European Union and the local rich in Greece, that they may have won an election, but nothing now would change. Syriza had a referendum in July of 2015. Do you accept the cuts that are demanded by the financial institutions? The people of Greece responded 61% to 39%. No, we do not accept such cuts. Within a few days, Syriza had implemented a worse set of attacks upon ordinary people than those of its conservative predecessors. And those attacks continue to the present day. Now, is that simply about the personality of Alexis Tsipras, the leader of Syriza? No, it's not. It wasn't about the personality of Ramsay MacDonald in the 1920s or of Harold Wilson in the 1960s, or of James Callaghan in the 1970s in Britain, or of Hollande, Francois Hollande in France. No, it's not just about their personal characteristics. It's about thinking that you can get social change simply by the method of getting elected to Parliament. And our argument is that we recognise, of course, the difference between the left and the right in the Labour Party. It's important. We support the left against the right. But the most important question is whether the wellspring of resistance and change comes from parliamentary manoeuvre and elections or by the resistance in the streets and the workplaces from below. And that huge wave that we saw across the world from Chile to Catalonia, to Hong Kong, to Sudan, to Algeria, to the French Yellow Vest movement just before the turn of the year, which was choked off by the coronavirus crisis. The Black Lives Matter movement today demonstrates to us that real change is not going to come through the Labour Party, led either by the left or by the right. Cheers. Thank you so much, Charlie. We've had another few more comments. We've had Satya, who said, absolutely right, Judy. 
So I'd like to encourage Satya to join the Socialist Workers' Party if she agrees with what Judy's saying. And Vaseem also says an absolutely brilliant comment. Vaseem says, I think real power can only come from outside Labour now. I think this is clearly what we've been seeing. Just as Charlie said, power is really on the streets. It's in the hands of the BLM protests. It's in the hands of the working class, dock workers in America who are striking in solidarity with the BLM. It's, we are the people and we're the people who have really got the power in our hands. Judy, I'm going to come to you again. We've mentioned that you were in Labour and you joined like millions of others because of Corbyn, the Corbyn project and what he represented. You, like myself, want to fight for a better world, one which is with more equality, with less injustice. And as we've mentioned, you've decided to leave now and you're a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. But many of the arguments, many people are calling for the left to stay in Labour and fight. Given what Charlie's just said, what do you think about this and how would you convince others to leave with you? I do understand it can be a difficult um, argument for people who feel they have devoted time and energy, who have friends, who have built campaigns in the Labour Party. But I left because I felt, I left before the election actually, just in the election campaign, because I felt physically sick waking up every morning to listen to not just the attacks and smears on Jeremy and the Labour Party, but their failure to mobilise all the people who were on their side. And it was that that was so heartbreaking. We know the right wing will attack us if we challenge them. We know the media back up big business. But it's when our side has forces on their side, they don't know how to mobilise, how to inspire, to change the story, to challenge the media. That is what is really heartbreaking. And I think there are people who say it doesn't matter so long as you're active, stay, leave, just be active. And of course, we can unite together over important campaigns. But it does matter what kind of organisation you're in, because if you stay in the Labour Party, your energy will be drained by committees and bureaucratic manoeuvres. And um, where I live in Tower Hamlets, there's a lot of support for the Palestinian Palestinian cause and motions have been passed through the council and they twinned with Janine and flew the flag but when it got difficult because of the IRHA definition of anti-Semitism that Labour council banned the big ride for Palestine a charity ride which raises money for sports equipment for Palestinian children nothing that radical was banned from Tower Hamlets by a Labour council and the second reason, not just your energy, but your political confidence, your political priorities will be eroded because the people who were chanting free, free Palestine, some of them are now saying we've got to unite behind Kia. That's the only way we can get elected. We've got to play the press at their own game. And unity with Keir Starmer is betraying the Palestinian cause and all the other radical hopes that people had. And I think I've never been more excited by what's happening outside of Parliament because the Black Lives Matter movement has shown us that when people have had enough and stand together, they change the certainties of centuries. Centuries these statues have stood and symbol symbolised all the attitudes behind them. And we can make common cause be between the Black Lives Matter, the Palestinian lives. If statues can topple, so can checkpoints, so can the... Um, barriers and the fences around the Gaza Strip and Palestinian children don't have time to wait for another four years to see if Keir Starmer is going to do something or not. We don't have the time. I think I was 16 when Sabra and Shatila refugee camp atrocities came out and it changed my political life. And every generation since there's been a 
and Israeli atrocity and Palestinian resistance. And that's what we need to build on, that we can um, change things fundamentally. And if Palestine is the issue, you must join an organization which, when you say Palestine should be free, wants to amplify your voice, wants to help you organize and make that happen, not humiliate you and silence you. 100%. Thank you so much, Judy, for coming on the show and talking to us about your experience. Hannah Kenny has just commented saying, so well said, Judy. And I think, you know, you mentioned the power that people have, but also I really like what you said. You said if statues can fall, then so can checkpoints and borders. I was at the protest in Bristol where they toppled the statue of the slave trader, Edward Colston, and it was absolutely one of the most inspiring things to see. You know, it really did feel as though a new wave was coming in. So I'd just like to lastly, I'm really upset to bring the conversation to a close. I've really enjoyed speaking to all four of our guests, but I think it's clear from what everybody said that in many ways, the Corbyn project is at a crossroads and the left is looking for a way to go in Britain. Millions have been inspired by that another world is possible, but I'm sure many can agree that the result of that project being Keir Starmer and his Labour Party is actually a very difficult one to stomach. And it really does feel as though we had one great leap forward and a massive leap backwards. So, Charlie, I'd just lastly like to come to you. Where does the left go now and what is the alternative to Labour in your eyes? OK, it's easy, isn't it, to point out the shortcomings of Labour. What's the alternative? That's a difficult question that I have to answer in three minutes. Let's look at the history of Britain. The British trade union movement came not out of the Labour Party, but out of the struggles of the 1880s, led by the match women, uh, migrants, teenage women, and the dockers. Their struggles from below were crucial in the foundation of the British trade union movement. The expansion of that movement was the great unrest of 1910 to 1914 and the struggles after the First World War, inspired not by the Labour Party, but by the ideas of syndicalism and then crucially of the Russian Revolution of 1917. The struggles in the 1930s against mass unemployment and against the fascists of Oswald Mosley were not inspired by the Labour Party, but were inspired by people in the Communist Party, which had been a revolutionary organisation, and by Jewish organisations and by people who were anti-fascist, not associated with the Labour Party. The great struggles of the 1970s, which achieved the biggest increases in the living standards of British workers, were driven by rank-and-file trade union militants in the trade unions and in the socialist organisations who were opposed to the Labour Party quite often and were spurned by the Labour Party. The resistance to racism and fascism in the 1980s and the 1990s in the Anti-Nazi League and the Unite Against Fascism and other anti-racist and anti-fascist organisations of course, there were Labour Party members inside them, but crucially were people based outside the Labour Party. The resistance to imperialist war in the early 2000s was not based upon the Labour Party. Indeed, it was directed against the Labour Party of Tony Blair, which was cuddling up to American imperialism. More recently, the resistance to racism and Tommy Robinson and the rise of the far right in Britain 
has been directed by people largely outside the Labour Party. Of course, there have been many very good Labour Party members who've taken part in it, but it has not come from the Labour Party itself. There's a lesson here. Look, it's difficult. It doesn't seem as immediate as the joining of the Labour Party. But if you really want to change society, the crucial struggles are those that happen outside the parliamentary sphere, not inside it. And we have to be active. We have to be in support of Palestine. We have to be against racism. We have to be against women's oppression. We have to be against homophobia and everything else that divides us. We have to be against the Tories. But in the course of all those struggles, you also have to ask yourself, what is the political alternative that we are building? It can't be enough to go inside the Labour Party. And it can't be enough simply to be an activist without trying to build a political project. Because an organisation of some thousands at this point makes a difference. And an organisation of thousands more can make a bigger difference in the future. Capitalism offers us three forms of extinction. Nuclear war, climate chaos, recurring pandemics. We need a different sort of future that requires a different sort of politics. It's urgent. If you're watching tonight, please join the Socialist Workers' Party to be involved in all the different forms of struggle, but also to be involved in the fight for a different form of society, putting people before profit and fighting for a socialist society which can bring about the possibility of ordinary people running society in their collective interest and providing a better future for everybody. Lee, absolutely smashing. Thank you so much, Charlie. And a big, huge thank you to all of our speakers, to Elan, Leila, Judy and Charlie for joining in. Just before we leave, I've got a few um, announcements to make from you. I hope you enjoyed our discussion tonight and you keep commenting, you can keep sharing the link. Um, the video will be posted shortly after broadcast. But I've just got two quick announcements. Three out of four of our speakers, Elan, Charlie and Judy, are all actually authors and you can get their books online. Um, I'd, I urge people to visit www.bookmarksbookshop.co.uk. You can see the link just below. Bookmarks is an independent bookshop which specialises in socialist history and socialist politics. They're currently closed to the public during the pandemic. However, their mail order section is still open. So please go online, order a book from them. They're an absolutely brilliant organisation that is a very fun to my heart. That's very close to my heart. And you can get Elan Pape's book on the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Um, Charlie's co-authored a book about the a Marxist history of the Labour Party, amongst other things. And also, even though the delivery may take you a few days later, I think Jeff Bozos is a, one of the few people whose profits have continued to climb during this pandemic. So we'd prefer if you ordered books off of our independent socialist bookshop rather than Amazon. And uh, lastly, before I leave you, I'd just like to echo what Charlie and Judy said about the importance of an organisation like the Socialist Workers' Party. Charlie mentioned uh, the current issue of climate change facing us. I'd like to remind people it wasn't long ago that the world was literally on fire with the Amazon burning and the Australian bushfires that we saw. But politically, the world still is very much on fire. As we've mentioned from the Black Lives Matter protests, the war and the famine in Yemen, 
catastrophic climate change, the fight for Palestine. These things are all caused by the oppressive system and economic system that is capitalism. And the COVID-19 crisis has only exposed and exacerbated those cracks in the system. If you think about rising unemployment, a coming economic crisis on our way, the absolute mess which our health system and our education systems are in, these are things that we really need to fight together and build. We can see that the change is not going to come through Keir Starmer, from Boris Johnson or from anyone within the Labour Party. This is a world that we really have to build for ourselves because the change we must see needs to come from outside, from the working class. I joined the, Soci the Socialist Workers' Party six years ago when I was 15, and I've never looked back. It's been six years of activism, education, and fighting for justice. And I really can say with full confidence that now is the time that the, the tides are really changing. This is when we need socialists in society. We need people who will not compromise on their principles, but will instead act on them and fight for them every single day on every single picket line. And this is what we do in the Socialist Workers' Party. So please do join on the link below. You can get active you can get organized you can start building a revolution and a better world tomorrow so um, without further ado i'd like to thank once again all of our speakers everybody for tuning in um, and i'll leave you with stay safe and stay socialist thank you